Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm listening to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, my friends. That is a tribute to Eddie Van Halen, who died this week. Van Halen was huge when I was in high school. They were by far the most popular band at Nashua High when I was there. But anyway, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone Podcast. Two weeks ago, Scott Cornish and I recorded, and what we planned on being a one-hour show turned into two hours of recording, so we're going to get the second half of that to you right now. Hopefully this will be the most fun 60 minutes of your week. And right now, I want to bring on our guest who was gracious enough to join us for a second consecutive episode to answer everyone's question, Mr. Scott Cornish. Scott, good to have you again. Hey, I'm well known for my graciousness. (laughs) You are well known for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I want to thank all the people that got in touch with me over the week about how much they loved last week's episode. It was uh, it was really very flattering. I'm, I'm humbled by the response, to be honest. I, I am humbled and touched as well by the response we've gotten from the previous episode <laughs> Okay, in the past week. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's continue answering the questions. We ended with a little bit of a teaser last week. Brian Last asks, what was the point you lost faith in the NWA? In 1989 or 1990, Scott, you you mentioned that you just really didn't care. <laughs> Not that I don't care. I just don't put it that way. Brian cares far more passionately about wrestling than I do, and that was probably true back then too. When I really started getting into wrestling, I was kind of grown up. I mean, <laughs> in high school, and then well, if you're talking about 89, you know, now I've been out of school and through college and all this kind of stuff. So no, I wasn't sitting there going, boy, you know, they've really, they've really let me down. But I mean, didn't Flair have his feud with Steamboat and then Terry Funk in 1989? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. And I think 1989 was a great year. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I saw them. They headlined what would now be called a pay-per-view-worthy card in Syracuse. First time I got to see an NWA card. Probably the first time I got to see anything. No, I saw a Pro Wrestling USA AWA sort of card in Utica, and then the second time was this show up in Syracuse in '89. That was headlined by uh, Ric Flair versus Terry Funk. Then it had Sting versus Muda. It had the Road Warriors versus uh, I don't even know who, and on and on and on. Uh, you know, it, it was an unbelievable Steve Doctor Death Williams against Mike Rotundo, and being that it was Syracuse, their usual roles were switched where Rotondo was, was the hero and uh, Williams was the heel and he was having an absolute ball uh, wrestling as the bad guy that night. A fantastic show, so no, no, 89 would not have been the year I lost faith. Only by process of will say 90, but I'm sure you, you've got uh, something to say about it. Well, I, I do, but first, uh, when in 1989 was that show? Was it in, like, September? Uh, I can't say for sure. No, I think it was earlier in the year. I remember it was at the arena at the Syracuse Fairgrounds where they usually, during the state fair, would show the horses. They had the trotting exhibitions and the horse shows and everything like that. It still had a dirt floor. I mean, oh, it was a decent-sized place, which had a great atmosphere for wrestling. I think they ran there one other time, and years later I saw a TNA show there. But yeah, the night we saw them there, we had nice great floor seats and dirt floor. (laughs) Quite an experience. Because, I mean, Syracuse isn't that far from Worcester, Mass. And I saw basically the same show in Worcester, Mass, September. This could have been like the 31st anniversary today. It was late September uh, 1989. It was Flair Funk, Sting Muda, and it was a really bad show. Funk and Flair was the only good match. They saved it. And the reason I heard it wasn't a good match was a lot of the wrestlers had been impacted by Hurricane Hugo, I think it was. And, you know, here they are. Their homes are getting destroyed. and They're they're on the road performing. And obviously, they're just not as inspired as they might be on another night. Yeah, it had to have been about the same time. It was probably that same run. But 
I didn't think of the rest of it. Well, they couldn't really compare to uh, Flair versus Funk, but uh, I didn't think the rest of it shows anything bad. God, there were so many people that I saw on that show that I probably never saw again, like um, Norman the Lunatic and <laughs> yeah. Danny Spivey, and I don't know who else. No, it, it sounds about right, probably right around the same time. But anyway, I mean, when did I lose faith in the NWA? I mean, 1989 was such a big year. If, if you go back and look at any of the newsletters from 1988, I mean, the frustration with Dusty Rhodes was just out of control. I mean, people, you know, they'd had it with Dusty. You know, he was creatively yeah. done as Booker. And that happens to every Booker. But Jim Crockett would not make the move. And finally, Dusty, you know, defiantly runs an angle where uh, there's blood in, uh, on TV where the Road Warriors use a spike in Dusty's eye when they specifically said, don't do stuff like that anymore. Dusty, you know, lost any chance to be Booker, and then he left. And I'm not trying to be mean, but everyone was just celebrating Dusty going away. So then they have a booking committee. Then Ric Flair was the booker for early 1990, and it was good television, good shows. But Rick, he's just not cut out to be a booker because he's he's not a good manager of of people, which you have to be. And he just couldn't take all of the um, stress that comes with being a booker. So they bring in Ole Anderson. Now, I don't mean to rag on Ole Anderson too much, but he was done as a booker, okay? There was a time in my life where I thought I would have been a good booker or at least a good guy to have on that booking committee. Not anymore. I'm done. I'm not going to be, I'm not a good booker anymore. And Ole was way past being a good booker. He was booking 1974 stuff in 1989, and surprise, it didn't fly. He had a disastrous six-month run that the company was in far worse shape than it was when he came in. And then Ole got let go, and who comes back but Dusty Rhodes. And when Ole was hired, that was like the stomach punch. But when they brought Dusty back, that was the knockout punch. It's like, and it wasn't just the NWA was dying. It was that the wrestling that I had grown up enjoying was officially going away and it was never coming back. I mean, we were all yeah. hoping that they would bring in Bill Watts, who they brought in a year later and was a complete disaster. I, I mean, you know, it was gone. And that was, like I said, the the time and the way it, it happened. It started right before Thanksgiving, I want to say, 1990. There was a rumor that Dusty might be coming back. It's like, oh, yeah, right. And then this rumor started rolling and becoming more prevalent and then it became official that dusty was leaving after the royal rumble and he was going to be the booker in charge of creative control of the nwa and you're just i'm just like you know he was out of ideas three years ago two years ago what makes you think he's suddenly going to be the guy again so that was that was the the moment where i lost faith in the nwa mm, yeah that makes sense like yeah it's the only you don't even have to be successful at it. You can still fail upward <laughs> because somebody is always going to give you a chance, even if you failed, because they'll look past that and say, well, here's this time when he did really well, you know, fit in whatever name you want. And some people had a greater level of success that only had his successes. But yeah, there's just about everybody that has gone through that where they got brought back and they just didn't have anything to offer when they got brought back. I um, mean, that's, True of Dusty, true of Ole, true of anybody else you want to name. I mean, true of Bill Watts. I mean, he came back a year later, and he was the guy everyone wanted. And guess what? Bill Watts hadn't watched wrestling in five years, and believe it or not, he was out of touch. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> well, it's, it's that old expression. It is better to fail uh, using conventional methods than to succeed using unconventional methods. But anyway, Tim Treetrolled. <laughs> asks paul jones army is one of the worst stables in the history of wrestling but he had a couple of good soldiers throughout the years who were the best and worst members of paul jones army what do you think scott give me your best and worst well best has got to be rick rude and Andy fernandez right <laughs> just, uh, i have rick rude by a mile oh yeah rick rude and even manny fernandez who i'm not a huge fan of but there was something there that really did work if you look at the list, you see some good names, some 
absolutely horrendous things <laughs> and some sort of fairly in the middle. You know, you might think, oh, Von Raschke, but he wasn't the worst by far. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, certainly Rick Rude on the rise and Manny Fred Adams was a reliable. Uh, but they were almost too good to be in the, the continuing saga of Paul Jones versus Jimmy Valiant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Them being put together and getting the titles, I mean, they were going to start pushing Paul Jones after him being the manager of you know that horrible stable. Like, this was going to be his push and kind of his reward for mm-hmm. losing his hair at Starcade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, uh, boy, that was one feud. that you, you almost can't discount that because that feud, as long as it was and over long or whatever you want to say, that was a valuable spot on the middle of the card for three over three years <laughs> yeah <laughs> way I mean, too long but still you'd fill smaller buildings with that that would always be featured on a huge show i mean it's ridiculous but still <laughs> no i mean tyler judd who was our guest two weeks ago he grew up in north carolina and he would talk about how you would have jimmy valiant against one of paul jones guys in a a small rural town and it would draw so who, who can argue right Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I said. That people are never, it's fun to take pot shots at, at some of these characters and so forth. But they all had a useful, I mean, you don't want a show where everybody is Rick Steamboat. Yeah. No, that's an excellent yeah. point. Yeah. But the worst is, surely it's got to be Vladimir Petrov. Oh, God, I almost forgot about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they never get tired of, of coming up with you know, some big overstimulated Russian, and that guy was just a, a slab, just a big. Uh, <laughs> I don't recall even that much about him, except here's poor Ivan, you know, Uncle Ivan doing the heavy lifting yet again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was hot years. for a little but while I'll, when they first brought him in, but he cooled off fast. Yeah. Cornette has an expression where they say you, you can cheat a house on somebody like the first time you see him. First time you see Vladimir Petrov, you go, "Oh my God!" You know, <laughs> you know, it's whoever. But uh, and then I'll say next to uh, Vladimir Petrov, I think the worst member of his army was Paul Jones. <laughs> That's a good point. Wow. Do I have to bring up Mighty Wilbur? <laughs> uh, I thought of Mighty Wilbur. At least I got you, a little you, bit of a laugh out of him. So a little bit. For, yeah, that's true. They had a goofy little thing going that I got a kick out of. But if you look up. Paul Jones Army in Wikipedia, and it's astounding to think that you can't look up Paul Jones' Army on Wikipedia. They don't even mention Mighty Wilbur. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. That's <laughs> it really... Paul Jones' good friend, Red Bastine, recommended the Mighty Wilbur to him. Not to go on a tangent, but like we watched the NWA so that we didn't get stuff like that. If you want stuff like that, go watch the WWF. I mean, I have Rick Rude by a mile. I really liked Manny Fernandez in that heel role, which I kind of saw coming that he was going to turn, but I was like, Oh, this guy's kind of far out there. And then Paul Jones gives him the briefcase full of money. And he turns on his former Vietnam war buddy, Jimmy Valiant. I mean, Rudy Manny to me, just, I mean, it's, it looked good on paper. It sounded good. I didn't think those two clicked though. I, I thought Rudy right. Fernandez and Jones just did not have chemistry. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> then I don't know who you would say he I guess he did the best with the Russians, probably. Uh, <laughs> must have been. Uh, I'm trying to think who all clicked with, if not them. But I don't know. You could always see the potential in recruit anyway. And yeah. Nikita was certainly a spectacular find for however long he was with him. But Nikita uh, was with Paul Jones. Out, I would have to check my list again, but I, I don't know if that's for certain or not. I'm getting a lot of a lot of Russians get mixed up. He had the assassins early on, and I don't know what version of the assassins, although one of them was Hercules Hernandez. And then he had the Russian assassins. <laughs> the Russian assassins, good night. I mean, Jim Cornette summed up the Russian assassins perfectly when he did the angle where Paulie, he doesn't even work here. Paulie dangerously jumped him. And <laughs> the, what is it, Tony Schiavone gave, hey, Jim, you've got a phone call. And Jim's like, can't you do this during the Russian assassins or something? He did that right on TV. What a great <laughs> comment. The worst mm-hmm. member of the Paul Jones army. I'm watching world championship wrestling on WTBS. 
I want to say like March or April 1986, and there's this guy in the middle of Paul Jones' army who I had never seen before. And I learned, it took me a couple of weeks, that his name was T. Joe Khan. He was this goofy-looking, not-too-big guy with a mohawk, and he didn't talk, and he had bad facial expressions. And, I mean, just the introduction was enough. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? I've never seen him before. And I knew who all the wrestlers were, at least through the magazines. So I knew this guy was just, you know, straight out of wrestling school or whatever, even as a mark. I knew that. <laughs> yeah, he had a decent run in a bunch of different places, but never really improved or got interesting at any point. You know? No. I mean, I, like I no. say, I know you've got to fill out the card, but fill it out with someone other than this guy. Jonathan McDonald wants to know where we rank Ole Anderson all time. Scott, where do you rank him? Well, another thing that I don't do is just sit around ranking people, but I'll say probably right about where he is. You know, he didn't travel all that much, if, unless somebody wants to correct me. Uh, no. He did awesome. He was, here. the, the positives, the guy was, so believable, uh, tough, you know, nasty, all that kind of stuff that he talked about. All that stuff was good. Never saw that much with him and Gene, but I saw enough of it. And saw him and Arn, and that was that was something that was real good. So there's all that stuff. So if we're just talking about his wrestling, he used to have a shirt that said, you know, damn, I am good. <laughs> and you know, and he didn't buy that. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but he was. I mean, he was very believable. I remember a few, you might've brought it up about uh, how Stan Hansen eventually turned on him. I remember seeing that unfold on TV and I thought that was a really good uh, angle where uh, Stan Hansen really was in Japan and only for a couple of weeks on Georgia wrestling is subtly and outwardly just putting down Stan Hansen as a dummy and not reliable. He's this and that, you know, what is he, this kind of stuff. And then, He's already bad-mouthing Stan in the early part of the live PBS show. Yeah. And then in the middle of the show, here comes Stan. He's got his overnight bag. <laughs> his jacket isn't even off. Oh, I just got here from, you know, I just got here from the airport. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this and this and that. And Gordon solely keeps trying to tell Stan what Ole's been saying about him. <laughs> Ole is trying to shove Stan Hansen off the screen, you know. <laughs> Eventually, I guess he goes backstage and sees some videotape or somebody spills the beans and then it's all off, you know, it's on between him and Ole. I always got a kick out of that. But anyway, yeah, so there's all the great stuff that Ole does. And as a booker, he had a great run for a while, you know, but yeah. you already talked about it when he came back uh, beyond a certain point. He has a soft spot in his heart for some veterans. He's got this reputation of being this miserable old grouch, but you know, he had a soft spot in his heart for people like Oh, God, the Sheik, Buzz Sawyer, and uh, especially Thunderbolt Patterson, Gene Anderson. You know, it's not a disgrace to keep someone around, but some of those guys were kept around beyond any point where they were yeah, where they were useful. So absolutely great at what he did, but didn't travel very much. I, I can't think of too much that he did outside. He didn't need to, of course. <laughs> Don't anybody bring this up to him <laughs> so he can yell and scream because uh he is smart and i'm dumb <laughs> but he was really great and i i don't know I, I think it's hard to say being that he just never got out of that area everything he did there was successful up to a point no only took great pride in the fact that he stayed in the mid-atlantic area and georgia he felt no need to go anywhere else once he became established there I, I, he did a, a week in florida after uh, they did the angle where he turned on Dusty, but like that's the only time, like after 75, 76, where he was out of those two territories. And, and like I said, he takes pride in that. He didn't feel like he, he didn't want or need to go to Japan. He didn't, you know. So I, I personally think that Ole and Gene Anderson belong in the Observer Hall of Fame as a tag team. You know, I used to not think that, but. Now there are more tag teams, and Ole and Gene would fit right in to that mix of tag teams. And also, I just want to bring it and make everyone aware, we have a major Ole Anderson show coming to Stick to Wrestling. And that this should be, we're probably about two or three weeks away from that, but that's on its way. Now, Nick Bizantz asks, 
what if the WWF worked with Andy Kaufman instead of Memphis? Could Kaufman get that type of heat in the Northeast? Scott, what are your thoughts? What kind of a stupid question is this? Honestly, what are you finding, listeners? Get the fans. My God. Um, <laughs> well, no, that's, to answer your question, though, I guess we'll give the man his due. <laughs> Nick, Nick is a, a, a friend of mine. At least he was up until now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, could it have worked? Yes. But it, I think he said, could it get as much heat as it did in Memphis? No. If he does it at about the same time, is WrestleMania already a thing? They've had a couple of them. I'm no, think exactly uh, by, the time, by the time WrestleMania was, I mean, Andy was dead by then. No kidding. Oh, no, no, you're right. True. Wow, I'm, I'm way off. So if, if, if they take a chance on Andy Kaufman, he's going to be at that time that they had him and he was hanging around the garden and stuff. He's just going to be bogged down working with Moolah. <laughs> he's not going to get the heat that he got in Memphis. He won't be allowed to get the heat. <laughs> there were guys who were lead heels that didn't get the heat that he got in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, so I'll say no, it would have been a totally different thing. It, it would have been so unique for the time that it probably would have been good and certainly would have been entertaining knowing that Kaufman was as respectful and such a fan as he was, but probably not as good as, certainly not as good as the way it played out. No, I, I think it, it, the WWF would have been fine with Andy Kaufman in, you know, 1982, 1983. But the thing is, they did fine without him. I mean, you know, the WWF was red hot during those two years. So you really can't criticize Vince Sr. too much for not wanting to do it. I mean, he was already making as much money as he could, quite frankly. All the seats were filled. Yeah. But it would have worked. I mean, they couldn't have put him up against Bob Backlund. That's for sure. It would have had to been had to have been a feud with I don't know Ivan Putsky or someone like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it would have been entertaining. But like I said, you know, I I think Memphis was the perfect place for that feud. I couldn't see like Ric Flair feuding with Andy Kaufman or Tommy Rich doing oh. it with feuding with Andy Kaufman. Jerry Lawler against Andy Kaufman makes perfect sense. So Memphis was the the place to have nobody. It. It could have only happened the way that it did. Lawler was so perfect. Uh, he was better at it than Kaufman by far. <laughs> yes. But Kaufman was kind of a natural and was so enthusiastic. But I used to think it was sort of a knock when people would say that's the biggest thing that Jerry Lawler was ever involved in. And I don't think it's a knock anymore. <laughs> I think it's entered sort of a legendary status. Mm-hmm. And uh, every so often you go back and revisit it. Oh, God, look at Lawler on Letterman. That he's the one who's just so great in that clip. My God, it's great. You know, I watched Letterman the night after, and I'm like, what? There was Jerry Lawler was on this show, and they the, they got into a fight? How did I miss this? But I did. But anyway. That's in the headlines. I suppose if, if it had happened, if he'd done it with the WWF, they certainly would have had instant access to all that East Coast media and the TV shows and everything like that, even quicker than they had it with the Memphis stuff. Oh, yeah, but, definitely. Uh, but, but other than that, like I say, first he's got to wrestle women, so that means Moolah or Moolah's girls or something like that. I don't see her playing along with that too well, you know, playing yeah. with others, but uh, who knows? But uh, I, I, that's better the way that it worked. I mean, quick comment on this before we move on to the next question. I mean, Andy Kaufman was not doing well in 1982 and 1983. I mean, Taxi was long over. He couldn't get a movie. He couldn't get it on a, a TV show. So, I mean, that might be one reason he was doing Memphis wrestling. And, you know, like I said, his career had stalled. I mean, I'm sorry. You know, I know he's well remembered now, as he should be. He was really funny, but his career was on I, its ass. Well, I don't think that bothered him. I always wonder if he had lived, if people speculate on with this wrestler or that wrestler had lived. I can't even imagine what he'd be up to now. Uh, oh God! Far beyond wrestling, far beyond wrestling. I'm sure. I don't think it mattered a, a little, even a little bit. I think he was probably actually glad to get out of taxi. He never liked it. He liked the money, I guess. But I think he was uh, liberated. He, he just loved it, the freedom to be able to do something like that, to just throw it in people's faces and get as far out there as he possibly could. He probably was never happier in his career than the stuff he did in Memphis, even yeah. though it. Uh, it hurt him in the long run, probably. 
It might have, but I mean, I, I read a book a long time ago written by his manager, who was also his best friend, and he said that Andy didn't mind doing Taxi. He didn't love it, but he didn't hate it, and he loved the money. I mean, that's the big thing. He loved yeah. the money. Yeah, but he had so many different things that he wanted to do and so many different things that he did that he got done in such a short time that he was uh, in front of the public. I was always been a huge fan of his. I was lucky enough to have gotten to see him uh, live. Oh, yeah. And as a matter of fact, he hadn't wrestled anybody. I've told this story before, but I saw him at Syracuse University, and he hadn't wrestled women on TV. I was a wrestling fan, certainly. But he hadn't wrestled women on TV, so people didn't know that aspect of his act or his persona. But there it was on the poster. You know, Andy will wrestle women, you know, can pin a woman for a three-count or she can pin him for a three count, she'll win $500. So it's part of the act. He's Andy from Saturday Night Live and Taxi. The place is packed. It's all college-age kids, and they're all super into it. When he came out in the robe, and Zamuda dressed up as the, the referee, and he's fanning the $500 bills, and they pick women out of the audience. It's totally random. But when he comes out and starts doing the heel mannerisms, the sneer, the strut, the lines, you know, and little fake kicks to the woman's ass and things like this. This audience of hip college students turned and started booing him. He got actual heat. It was unbelievable. <laughs> no, that is, that is a, never, an amazing they, memory. They, they weren't playing along with something they hadn't seen because they, they hadn't seen it on TV yet, you know? And then he managed to turn them back, you know, get them back for the end of the show and the other routines he was doing. But uh, he was unreal. I really uh, always been a huge fan. Wow, you got to you see something great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And many, many years later, long after his death, I got the Tony Clifton in concert, <laughs> which is almost as bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andy was something. Anyway, uh, J- JT Zenos, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, why is the Dangerous Alliance so underrated? aside from it being 1992 WCW. And then he has a side question. How would turning Tillman sooner and putting him in the Alliance have worked? I'll tell you what, let's answer these one by one, Scott. Why do you think the Dangerous Alliance is so underrated? Or do you think that? They never strike me as the faction that people talk about. Look at it. You look at the pictures, look at the people that are in it. You go, that's amazing. But as talented as Paul Lee was, he... He wasn't a magician. <laughs> some, of the people in, some of the people in the group, they certainly weren't washed up. There wasn't anybody on there. I mean, Larry Zabisco looks like an odd fit, but he and Bobby Eaton, was it? I mean, did he work with Bobby Eaton in that team, in the Dangerous Alliance? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I mean, they, they had a hard time figuring out what to do with Bobby after Stan and Jimmy left. Yeah, so there you've got people that are all great. Some of them hadn't reached their peak yet, like Austin, and some of them probably had, you know, still incredibly talented. Somebody as useful as Bobby Eaton or as experienced as Arn or Larry Zabisco, but it's hard for me to think who they were up against at that time. But, you know, Medusa had almost no actual role in the group, you know, it was was just sort of window dressing, you know, it was all people that were pretty talented and that were super talented that would get even better. But that doesn't, uh, <laughs> it just didn't work out. I'm trying to think who they went up against back then. And I'm, it was I'm basically Sting and Friends. Them. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> that shows you why I tuned out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, were they underrated? I mean, you know, JT's got the answer in his question. I mean, it's, it's 1992 WCW. The company yeah. is not doing well. It was a real down period from them. I thought Paulie Dangerously was great in the group. I mean, one thing that really worked against the Dangerous Alliance, I mean, after how many years and how many incarnations of the Four Horsemen did we go through? And then we've got something that I think just looks too much like the Four Horsemen. So I think that worked against them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've seen that, that Paulie, I mean, he can struggle to get somebody over. I mean, there are some people that he's worked with that are just you can't help, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, when he's on, there's rarely been anybody better, but that even shows you the dangerous alliance would show you that you can have everybody in that be grand rude was in there. You know, you can have everybody in there be just 
great, just absolutely outstanding, and still had it not work. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So the side question, how would turning Brian Pillman sooner and putting him in the Dangerous Alliance have worked? Uh, I was at live wire at that time. I, that sounds like a thing to do to me. I mean, I don't know if it would have made them any, any better, but it sure would have been entertaining to watch. You know, when they turned Brian Pillman heel after years of not knowing what to do with him, I mean, he was just flatlining in that company. And I knew Pillman was really talented and they were calling him California Brian and all kinds of weird stuff. But when they turned him heel, I was like, that is such a mistake. He's not a heel. He is a baby face. He, in my opinion, was too small to be a heel. And I think that still worked against him. But when they did it, it worked. I was like, whoa, I was surprised by how well it worked. I think Pillman would have been better not being a member of a crew like that. I thought Pillman was better off not being a horseman. I think he should have just done his thing with Steve Austin or done his thing solo, and that that should have been it. But, I mean, Brian Pillman as a great heel was a surprise to me. If it had never happened, I'd be sitting here right now saying it, it never would have worked. Forget it. And I would have been wrong. Josh Eel asked, what was the deal with the Omaha branch of the AWA? Scott, do you have any ideas? I don't know much about this. I know less than you do. (laughs) Okay. I have no earthly idea. Was it AWA, the Omaha branch, or Uh, or the NWA, did you say? I mean, here's what I have, my exact words. I really have no idea, except Omaha used to be a huge NWA city, and that's going back to like the 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe a little, I think. But I I don't know. No, I don't. I do not know. (laughs) My apologies, Joshua. All right, Chuck Gunter. Could the Commandos, Ray Candy and Grizzly Boone, who were in the NWA like late 88, early 89, could they have had a good run in the WWF? What do you think, Scott? Did they have a good run in the NWA? (laughs) No. They probably would have had a better run in the WWF than they had where they were. I mean, I don't recall them having... I, I think maybe the Zambui Express, that w- where they would uh, Ray Candy was in that group too, would have had a better run just about anywhere, and they were a, a more solid team. I don't have any tremendous memorable idea on the Commandos. On the other hand, so the Commandos go to the WWF, and that's absolutely that's a Lou Albano team. Got to be a Captain Lou Albano team, right? So I can well, Albano was retired by then. No, no kidding. Okay, well, see, yeah, you're definitely ahead of me on your uh, commandos uh, trivia. <laughs> uh, I had a good comment about that, but it doesn't make sense if Albano was retired. I don't know. If he was retired by that point, then I'd say that's, that's really uh, too late in the game for the commandos to do much of anything because Ray Candy had to have been oh, yeah. quite well, a veteran by then. I mean, Chuck, I want you to know that I put way too much thought into this question. With the late 80s WWF or the early 90s WWF, you never knew what they were going to do. I mean, they brought in the sheep herders and turned them into the bushwhackers. And I mean, it got over for what it was. You never know what they're going to do for tag teams. So I could see the WWF just bringing in these two massive guys who can barely move because they didn't care about that stuff and, and giving them. You know, a role as a tag team, putting them in them in the tag team division. And, and one other way to look at it, I mean, they brought in John Tenta and made him the earthquake. They brought in uh, what's his name? He was Big Bubba in Memphis. I'm trying to think of his shoot name. I, I knew this off the top of my head. Fred Ottman. They brought in Fred Ottman and they made him Typhoon. They gave him the big push. He was going to main event SummerSlam until he pissed someone off. But then I'm like, okay, well, Vince did it with with Tenta. He did it with with Typhoon. Like now, if you do it with these guys, are you bringing in too many like giant obese guys? Like you can only have a certain quota of those. You see what I mean when I say I put too much thought into this? (laughs) Well, (laughs) also, they they were always was a good idea to stockpile guys that Hogan could blow through. And he loved wrestling guys like Tenta and, and uh, Tugboat, or not, well, <laughs> he was originally Tugboat, yeah, Typhoon, <laughs> guys like that. So I could That's see right, him doing something. Before that. Oh, I saw the greatest thing when he had just come to the WWF as Tugboat. I saw him at 
the Utica Auditorium, where I would always go to see him. I don't know if I'd even seen him on TV, but he comes out and has an early match, a preliminary match early on the show. And then he comes back and saves somebody from a beatdown in like uh, the main event, you know, something like this. I'm trying to remember exactly who, but I can't. So let's say it's Tito Santana. Let's say Tito Santana is getting double teamed by somebody and uh, he's got to have somebody's got to come and help Tito. So up the aisle, he's already been a, wrestled on the show. Here comes Tugboat. He gets to the rail and he's got to get over the rail. Uh-oh. So first of all, before he jumps over the rail, he pulls his hands down like he would, I guess, working a tugboat and goes, doo, doo. <laughs> then, then he jumps the rail, but he doesn't make it. He gets stuck straddling the rail. <laughs> so I got to see an early version of the uh, Shockmaster baby <laughs> yes. so, so that he has to sort of like unwedge himself from the rail and get back over. And as he goes up and gets in the ring, I see the security guard who's sitting right there turn to his friend with tears in his eyes and going, toot, toot. I've seen him do interviews and signings and stuff like that. That guy is so nice, probably too nice to a better wrestler. But um, oh, I still remember the, uh, the grand Utica debut of Tugboat. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> Yeah, like I That's said, he was right on as, the rail. as Tugboat, he was supposed to main event a SummerSlam teaming with Hulk Hogan. And to this day, I don't know what happened other than he pissed somebody off. I don't even know who the somebody is, but his push was quickly gone. Jesus Salas Rodriguez asks, what's your favorite censored angle or spot that you've ever seen? Scott, what do you think? I, I had a hard time trying to look up censored angle. Um, <laughs> Did they censor, not the first time it ran, but did they censor Terry Funk putting a plastic bag over Rick Flair's head? No, they didn't. Oh, they should have. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> yeah, censored that in one, the but, dressing room. Yeah, if not that, then um, I could have sworn they might have when they tried to show a replay, but I'm probably wrong. Other than that, the only thing I can think of is that the big X on the screen whenever Blackjack Mulligan would put the claw on somebody in the WWF poor guy would have to get some color with the claw on top of that. And then a big X on your screen on top of that. And I know people, maybe, maybe it was you, somebody that said that when they were really young and saw that they actually tried to go up to the TV set and see if they could see around the X. Scott, that was me. That was me. I got up and tried to look around the X. You listen to a show people. That is hosted by someone who did that. Well, that is, uh, that's to be commended. That's, that's a true <laughs> believer. I, love, I, I, I admire that, but I, I do have to say I was a grown man when that happened, so I never did something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, so that's the only the centered thing. angle I can think of and it, it, that, I, that I can recall, and it, it almost goes against my lifelong unexplained dislike of everything involving Jack Black Jack Mulligan. <laughs> He's another one up there, almost in sting category. I just never, <laughs> never got it. Uh, I, I mean, here's, here's a good example of a, a censored angle. They had in 1980, they had uh, Black Jack Mulligan. Hey, who else? And Bobby Duncan wrestling on mid Atlantic TV and they're fighting. And then all of a sudden they digitize the picture. And then they say, we can't have this on TV. It's too violent. We're sorry. And you see this digitized thing that you, you can't make out anything. And then, and then like they, they cut to commercial. And to me, that's great promoting because that makes you want to go to the arena and see what you can't see on TV. Oh yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. And that was Mulligan too. Yeah, and I mean, the, the best way to get someone to want something is to tell them that they can't have it. So they, it's perfect. Oh, it's like, sure. hey, you got to go pay to see it. One of my favorite, Jimmy Hart, it wasn't anything like that, but just that example of reverse psychology. <laughs> Jimmy Hart, the way until the cheering, the jeering and the cat calls would get to a fever pitch, and then he'd say something like, if you don't stop making that kind of noise, I'm going to leave here and never come back. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Uh, all right. Jerry Joy asks, here's another question I put way too much thought into. 
if Harley Race doesn't beat Terry Funk for the NWA title, who do you put in his place? Scott, what do you think? What year is it? Uh, this would be February 1977. Oh, boy. February yeah, 7th, than I believe, 1977. 7th or the 9th, one of those two. Well, I'm going to say Nick Bockwinkle. You know what? I have a, like an interesting Nick Bockwinkle thing that I'm going to I'm going to talk about on the show. Or at least I think I'm, I think it's interesting. So we got a question on it. Mike, I have three answers. See, I told you I put way too much thought into this. <laughs> the 1977 version of me says Dusty Rhodes. Like when I was in sixth grade when this happened, I was reading the magazines. Okay, if it's not Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes. Right now. The 2020 version of me says Ric Flair. And to answer everyone's next question, yes, I do think Ric Flair was ready. I think he was ready in every facet of the game. Rick may say he wasn't ready, but I think he was ready. Now, if you take 1977 me and 2020 me, and we have to come up with someone we can all agree with, it would have been Dusty Rhodes because he could have been, you know, he has to be a babyface in Florida, probably has to be a babyface in Georgia. But he could be a tweener or a heel anywhere else. And we know from, you know, his early 70s stuff, Dusty was a really good heel. This is kind of mixed up. But when I first saw heel Dusty Rhodes, and this was, I want to say, 20 years ago, maybe 25, he reminded me of a young Terry Gordy. I mean, he was just incredible. He was exactly like Gordy. So if he needed to go to Dallas or Portland or San Antonio, he could have been that dusty and it would have been great. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. Yeah. So the seeds for something even worse in the future than what we got. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I put way too much thought into that. All right. Sam Nord asks, Steve Austin's neck never recovers from Owens botched pile driver in 1997, which by the way, was a legitimate concern at the time. What's the main event for the 1998 WrestleMania? And does the WWF still win the wrestling war? What do you think, Scott? Well, I can answer the second question first, but I'll say the main event is Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels. With, uh, and this is the one with Mike Tyson? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. So it's, un- I mean, they have enough time to tell the story about Austin's neck. They tell the story. They acknowledge it somehow. So Owen's career trajectory goes differently because they don't just forget about Owen and stick him with whoever he was with that night. So they talk about it. So it's Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels in the main event with Austin at ringside. And see, at some I point, think if, if his career is over, you just got to drop the guy. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, well... <laughs> That's my harsh, idea. but he's got well, no place yeah, in the story. My, my, yeah, but I don't know. But anyway, but, but my idea then basically was that Steve Austin is at ringside, or some say he's even not at ringside, but whatever, they do put the blame and all the heat on Owen. But anyway, the main event is Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels. Instead of the ending the way it did, I say Austin is at ringside in Undertaker's corner, and at some point during the match, near the end of the match, Owen comes out, tries to interfere. Tyson knocks him out, and uh, Undertaker gets the win in all the confusion. All right. And Undertaker and Shawn Michaels was, was definitely on my I think I was like second place on my list. I'm going to go bold here. Number one, I think right there, if, if Austin could not come back from that, the WWF would not have won the wrestling war, and we would be looking at a completely different wrestling universe than we have now. I mean, you know, WWF is it's still around. It's doing well. I, I don't think it would be. I think what would have happened to WCW would have happened anyway, and I think wrestling would have more or less gone the the way of roller derby. I think it would have been just considered an 80s fad. Bold Me also thinks that had that happened at SummerSlam, there's no way Vince McMahon would have dropped Bret Hart. Like with Steve Austin out of the way, you just have to bite the bullet and keep Bret. And and this was right around the time, too, when Vince started like talking about getting rid of Bret. I don't think he would have gone through with it. So my prediction, bold prediction, 
was WrestleMania would have been a newly turned babyface Bret Hart against heel Shawn Michaels doing the whole DX thing. And yeah, I think that, you know, like I said, we're, we're going a couple of steps ahead because, okay, how do you turn Bret? Well, you figure something out, you know? And I think that would have been my main event. Who was Bret against on that WrestleMania? Was he even on? Uh, Bret, no, Bret was long gone. He, he, his so he last was already match gone. Oh, okay, yeah. was Survivor okay, Series yeah. the so, year before. Right. So we're backtracking to where, uh, when did the injury happen? I'm just, I'm just uh, SummerSlam, <laughs> okay, 97. So this ah, was like yeah, yeah, okay. end of August. I remember watching that live and being like, you know, yeah. oh, that didn't look good. And then you see the look on Owen's face and Austin not moving and me being like, oh, God, this might not be good at all. That was I mean, a brutal pile driver. He just darted him into the mat. Ugh. But anyway. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Under those circumstances, if Austin doesn't come back, yeah, Brent never goes. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know about them. I don't think the uh, wrestling would have gone away just as a result of that. You know, if you still had Tyson, you still had some kind of involvement and that kind of thing going on. I think, you know, they still have failed or it may have taken longer for them to win the wrestling war. But I, yeah, I think they still win. I don't know, man. I think it all turned on Steve Austin. I mean, if you watch Raw and, well, you know, they're available on the WWE Network. Every segment was either a Steve Austin segment or they were teasing a Steve Austin segment. And yeah, he was on the cover of everything. I think, you know, without Austin, the WWF would have never turned around. Like without Austin, we would have never had the rock, you know, that, I mean, I have no way of knowing that's just my opinion. No, I'm just saying you're, you're, uh, you're right in that you think about it a lot more than I do. <laughs> I, I respect your uh, thought and, uh, the, breadth of your knowledge. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, how do you think Nick Bockwinkle would have done in the NWA or WWF? Pete Pingle asked this question. Could he have carried one of their main titles? What are your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, not a hard one for me because I'll put him right up there with Terry Funk as being one of my absolute favorites. It absolute has to be in the top five. And so maybe I don't think about it as much as it needs to be. But yes, I think. Uh, he would have done great any place. He may not have been the same person had he had that wanderlust or that uh, drive to leave the AWA that he didn't have or need. But as far as his, his ability and his ability to, to have great matches and make magic with a whole variety of different people, I don't see a, a downside off the top of my head. I think he would have done great in either place and could have done a great job as champion too. You see, I don't think it would have worked in the WWF. I mean, unless they did a build-up the way they built up Superstar Billy Graham, but Superstar Billy Graham was like, you know, really a Northeast flavor with, you know, the look and the physique and the interviews and everything else. Um, I think he would have been, had he just come to the WWF, he would have had a, a major series against Bruno or Backlund, no questions asked. It would have been, you know, three consecutive nights at Madison Square Garden. But as, as champion, I, I don't see it happening. And that's less of a, a fault of Bachwinkle as he, you know, just wasn't the WWF was the WWF. The NWA yeah. champion, especially in the early 70s, he would have been a great NWA champion. As a matter of fact, there was a story where Paul Bosch and getting back to something that you said, Scott, Paul Bosch asked Nick Bachwinkle, I believe it was in 1979, and we know Bosch was not enamored with Harley Race's NWA champion. He asked Dick Bockwinkle, hey, would you like me to bring up your name as a possible new NWA champion? And Nick Bockwinkle took one look at what his schedule was going to be like. And he was like, no, I'm good doing what I'm doing. Thank you. But, you know, there's a, a story out there that Nick was offered a run at the NWA title and, and he turned it down. That's not the correct story. The correct story is, you know, he was asked, would you like to be considered? And he turned that down. But he would have been a great NWA champion in the 70s. Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, no, it's two different questions. Would he have done well? He would have done well anywhere. And yeah. Would he have done well as champion? I still say yes. Oh, would he get right. the chance to be champion? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me see. Josh Walton asks, which Clash of the Champions special did you think was the best one? What do you think, Scott? Well, I'm going to use my uh, 
upstate New York bias and say New York knockout from Troy, New York, that well-known suburb of New York City. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard for me to, uh, like I was thinking of ones that I thought were really great, and then I'd, then I'd stop and say, oh, no, that was a pay-per-view. That wasn't a clash. But uh, New York knockout is one that I absolutely remember. And I wasn't in the habit of traveling even the short distance that it is from my place to uh, Troy, New York is only about an hour and a half. So that's not even a difficult trip. And I've certainly taken it hundreds of times since then. But back then I just didn't travel to shows like that. So I missed that. And, uh, whenever I'm in Troy, <laughs> I somehow have that, that pang where I think, Oh God, how could I have missed that? That was some show. You know what? I'm like two and a half hours away from Troy, New York, and I thought about going, and I didn't go, and obviously one of my big regrets not going to that show. I, I mean, I had no idea how amazing it was. And in my defense, just a, two or three weeks ago, I went to Philadelphia for Halloween Havoc. I, I had gone to so many NWA shows, and I had to work that day. So, you know, I was like, ah, no, I'll, I'll skip this one. And obviously, Flair and Funk go out and have a five-star match. That was just incredible. My pick, it's by a long one. I mean, I, I think the first one was the best one. I mean, you had that classic Flair versus Sting match, or a match of the year candidate. You had the Midnights and the Fantastics with that brawl. Oh, God, yeah. That was just amazing. And then you had the tag team title change. But, you know, number nine was excellent, too. I mean, my favorite part of number nine might have been Lex Luger. I mean, Ric Flair got a Wrestler of the Year trophy and Sting got a trophy. And after Gary Hart turns on Terry Funk and Luger comes out and delivers a beating, Lex Luger puts a folding chair to those trophies. I thought that was hilarious. Oh, jeez. <laughs> another contender was Clash of the Champion 7. It had some clunkers. I mean, it was the, the debut of the Ding Dongs, but it was just a crazy crowd. And there was no air conditioning in the building, and it was a hot day in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And you could see at the end of the broadcast, like, Jim Ross is dying. He's, he's literally soaked in sweat. His hair's a mess. And it was just a crazy wow. night. It was a fun clash. What was the big match on that? Well, was it a couple of them? The main event was the Ric Flair versus Terry Funk match where Lex Luger turned heel. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and like by the end of the show, the crowd had thinned out. The crowd was so drunk and rowdy. It was nuts. I've never seen anything on television (laughs) like it. I watched that. It's like, oh, this is what the old Boston Garden was like. And it was just a very unique thing. Mm. All right. Dan Potts asks if the Bulldogs went to the NWA or UWF, this would be like 84, 85. How different were their legacy as a tag team be? Scott, share your thoughts with us. Had they gone to the NWA or the UWF to be sent? Uh, yeah. Um, like, what do you think it would have been like? It would have been even greater than it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so name the teams, name any team you care to, you know? If it's them against, you know, if they're going in as baby faces, then it's them against the Midnight Express or, or the, the Sheep Herders. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if they're going either to the NWA, you know, or maybe the, you know, if they're going in as, as, as heels, uh, then, then they're going against Rock and Roll and the Fabulous Ones or the Fantastics. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, it would have been better than it is. Than it's I mean, good. I've heard over the years that Bill Watts wanted to bring them in as a heel team, like basically. Yeah right before they went to the WWF and they were the ultimate team that, I mean, you could bring them in as heels and turn them babyface, and you know, the turn is coming and that would have made their run longer because, you know, by the time they left the WWF, they were pretty stale. And at that point, kind of just another tag team. I mean, I know Davey boy was talking about them turning heel in the WWF, but it never happened. Mm. But anyway, yeah, I mean, obviously it would have been great. Like Scott said, seeing them work against the Fantastics in the UWF or against the Midnights and the, and the Rock and Rolls in, in JCP, that would have been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Nick Price asks, what's one match that makes the 80s era wrestling the best, and what's the one match that makes the 80s era the absolute fucking worst? 
this is one of those questions where they ask it, and when you're trying to think of an answer, you just say, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this is the best thing I could come up with. I'll say it's the same match. The best and the worst was Hulk Hogan pins the Iron Sheik <laughs> and Madison Square Garden to win the WWF title. What that set off, what changed after that, what that ushered in, for good or bad, that would make my pick. The best of the 80s, the worst, not the best match necessarily, but as far as what it signified, that's the, there it is all tied up in one thing. You know, it's funny. I had a similar answer, which is that the first WrestleMania main event could be both. And we, we took it from a dis- different perspective. Like, you're like, okay, here's where we're going. And I'm like, okay, here's where we are. And, you know, as, as far as all of the, the positives of the first WrestleMania goes, you know, you've got mainstream coverage. You've got the, the show on closed circuit. I mean, you've got an outsider coming in. And he's the main event, and he's tougher than the wrestlers, and you know that's kind of negative to me. Yeah, yeah, it took a while for people to get over. You know, I can't imagine it happening any other way than the way that it did. They needed somebody, and they absolutely picked him. Mr. T turned out to be a flake beyond compare. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but but he was the right pick for that time. Oh my gosh. I mean, in answering it a different way. The Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich cage match that took place Christmas night, 1982. I mean, to me, that match, that match symbolizes a lot. It symbolizes that, look, wrestling is changing. That We are going to have, Kerry Von Erich ushered in the era of really good looking baby faces with great bodies. Like, you know, this is what 80s wrestling was in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And SummerSlam 89, same thing. They bring in a guy named Zeus, an actor, and suddenly <laughs> he's tougher than all of the wrestlers. Yeah. All it's right. funny, we're just, talk, we're, we're just talking about Andy Kaufman. Unthinkable at the time that the question is asked. And then a couple of years later, Zeus, sure, why not? Mr. Yeah. T, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Well, at least Andy Kaufman, I mean, you know, Lawler destroyed him with one move and, you know, Zeus is out there destroying the the other wrestlers. But anyway, uh, Mark Matsuo asks, how would either the Hart Foundation or the British Bulldogs have done in JCP in the 80s? Scott, I mean, obviously they would have done great. What are your comments on that? Yeah, um, we sort of discussed the, the Bulldogs question earlier. Yeah, if they go to JCP in the 80s, the same kind of thing. You just imagine the matchups. Uh, uh, we only see the good side of it. <laughs> the other side of it is, is maybe Dynamite's ability to work and play well with others. Um, <laughs> if you're comparing the two, I say the Hart Foundation does better going to uh, Jim Crockett promotions than the Bulldogs. I mean, I think especially Dynamite would have still had Japan and, and Davy Boy. They still would have had Japan be such a major factor in their career and their decisions. And again, his uh, his ability to get along in the locker room <laughs> might be an issue that it wouldn't wouldn't have been for uh, Neidhart and Brett. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dynamite wrote in his book, he tried to get a job in the NWA in 89. And Flair said something along the lines or, well, are you going to behave yourself? And Dynamite's like, hey, Rick, let's just leave it alone. Like, no, I'm not going to behave myself. I'm just going to stay at home. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, both the Hart Foundation and the Bulldogs were so good, they almost seemed out of place in the WWF, but they, they did well there, and you know, good for them. Oh, yeah. All right. All right, well, that wraps up all of our questions. I want to thank everyone in the Stick to Universe, Stick to Wrestling Universe for sending them in. I want to do this about once a month. We took too many questions this time, and we did two shows because the new Facebook forum and messed me up and it had questions that I couldn't see before I could close the threads. Sorry about that. Scott, I asked you for an hour and you were generous enough to give us almost two hours. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And as they used to say at Newbury Comics, I had a wicked good time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. Another seamless episode of Stick to Wrestling. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) This concludes our podcast day.